Tales from Corporate. It's us, your favorite people. <laughs> it is Elise and Maria. There we go. <laughs> So today's episode is about disruption and innovation. Or a few tales of. <laughs> right, right, right. So we definitely got inspired this week by uh, Wall Street Bets and the Redditors uh, taking on uh, The Street, a.k.a. Wall Street, in New York City, in the Hedgies. And um, <laughs> I think what's interesting is I've been a Redditor for many years, and that particular community had, like, I don't even think a million people were members of Wall Street Bets. Maybe a million, maybe two, in just a matter of days, not even one week. The community now has about six million plus. So people just poured in because of what happened on the street with uh, GameStop, uh Bed Bath & Beyond, Cost, RIM, which is BlackBerry, and Nokia stocks, just for a few examples. These companies were all basically dead on life support, uh, stock-wise, and they were resurrected <laughs> by <laughs> people yep. swarming. Um, some people want to call it market manipulation, but people swarming and pulling their money together in a very decentralized manner. And people invested. Some people invested via Robinhood in the very beginning because it's easy. And then, of course, you may or may not know about what happened with Robinhood. I don't know how their brand will recover after what happened this week. That is a whole nother episode. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's a whole aside there. Right, right. Right, right, Maria. Right. So mm -hmm. now you have um, people going through tons of other platforms, many of them. Uh, brokerage houses online for day traders or they call them retail traders uh, were shut down as far as those particular stocks a lot of unhappy investment activity uh, well not unhappy but what was happening the brakes were being put on and it was almost like playing a game and you knew there the rules and all of a sudden the rules were changing mid-play so mm, interesting so we'll see because uh this week's a whole new week and we'll see what the SEC does or does not do. Um, it'll be very interesting. But, but the also, point is I'll add the game seemed to have changed for a certain demographic and it was the non-institutional, more more likely everyday person that they exactly. changed on. And when, you know, some of the institutions got some of the medicine that they might have been doling out, then they wanted to take their ball and go home. Well, there you go. So some people, if you if you look at this in a different light, and I, I have to say, I was a little, not say a surprise, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was a little surprised at the way that reporters like a CNBC, like a Bloomberg television, just for to name a few, for examples, were reporting on the activity by these day traders. I thought it was just, um, it was put in a very negative light. So that's kind of what we want to talk about, was when you disrupt and when you innovate or you ideate, how is that received? So for many people now coming in and really looking at it from a more philosophical or actual perspective, 
there are two camps on this. People who felt like there were rules that were broken and that's not the way of doing business. And then there is the camp of this is the new way. So I think there was a paradigm shift, if I'm be honest here. And want to talk about like when that has happened at work, how was that treated? Is that sometimes treated in a hostile manner? Is it really welcomed? Is it about who brings along the idea? <laughs> you know, who's the one who pushed it up? Who gets credit for it? If it's a success, if it's a failure. So Maria, in your tale or tales that you want to share today, when have you experienced in the workplace ideation or innovation or disruption as far as maybe a solution, a product vertical in financials? And how was that kind of handled? Well, not going into too many specifics, we see it all the time. We may not notice that, or we may not always pick up on what's actually happening. And so you mentioned <laughs> with the GameStop you know, disruption, um, I think that's the neutral term to use. You mentioned the, the financial talking heads that are the experts, they sit down, they talk to the experts in the field, they sit down and they have many of the captains of industry on their television shows. You say you were surprised at that reaction. I don't know that I was as surprised as I was disappointed because it just seems so blatant that they were comfortable with things being one way. And when that, when their presumptions, when the knowledge, the the rules, as you put it, were challenged, there there didn't seem to be a neutral journalistic approach. It, w- it was clearly um, discomfort. And I think you you mentioned you know a lot of questions. One of which, when you have an idea, you know how is it um, received? Does it depend on whether that idea precipitates into success or failure and who's going to take credit for it. I think you were beginning to answer the very question that um, you asked and what I've observed is it has a lot, it's nuanced. So one, we've heard the phrase, something to the effect of um, success has a thousand fathers and failure has none or something to that effect. So one, there's the, the shiny, successful, new thing, right? You, I'm sure you've happened, had at your job, I've, I've had as well, where because that idea is gaining traction, all of a sudden, you know, people are going to either want to work on it or be attached to the genesis of that idea, right? Whereas if an idea isn't gaining traction, people are running away, stepping away from it as quickly as they can, like a fresh dog pile, right? (laughs) But I remember one particular idea that smart person I know had suggested years ago, and there was already there was resistance because there was already sort of a decision that this is the way we're going to do business. This is who we are and this is how we show up. And while all of that was well and good, it missed parts of the end client that 
because times have changed and, and, and clients, you know, individuals are becoming more educated based on what they're exposed to online, their questions are growing sophisticated by the generation, more sophisticated. They're, they're now, as of this last week, people now have short squeeze in their vocabulary. Like only if you had watched the movie Big Short, was would that be a household word to you? But so to kind of not incorporate the growing awareness that people have into your business model is a miss. Times are changing. That element might not have been introduced by your company or even your industry, but now the people who you are trying to influence your product or good on has a, their expectations have shifted. Okay. So your cheese might be moving. You know, I love my, my cheese analogy and to say that, well, because we've had success before, we're not going to shift with it. Sometimes that's absolutely right. But are we doing it in a thoughtful manner where we're kind of taking our ego out of it? I'm not always sure that that I'm saying we, the royal we, I'm not saying the royal we, we always are taking our ego out of it. I think there's, there's for many of us and many of the people I've worked with this need to be right and this need for control and this need for things to be back to homeostasis because we've already figured this out and we've come up with those rules. But the reality of it is, and I think what happened with GameStop, my theory is that's only the beginning. We've seen disruption now, latest in the short sales market. We've seen it on the in the capital and the insurrection. We've seen it from a racial equity and justice standpoint. People are now able to band together using social media. Their frustrations are now shared with one another for the, you know, GameStop, it was nostalgia, but it was also, while yes, it was maybe dying on the vine because of their, you know, business model, they're actually underlying financials were quite strong. So to say it's unthinkable that a set of people might have strong confidence in this holding and see it happening. Like anybody who was a part of that Reddit before everyone else joined the bandwagon after the success was out there, wouldn't you say, okay, maybe I should rethink this short or at least let me start to recognize that disruption might be happening in a new way as of the last handful of years? And should I be incorporating that into my strategy? So that's a long answer to your short question. You're right. It's interesting. The Wall Street bets versus the street analogy (laughs) or the real life case, use case, right? It's what we're lacking here is major change management. (laughs) When I say that, when I say that in a sense that change happens and you either prepare for it you are preventative or you're reactive and in this case you could say that some of the models and the way we did business were there was no preparation here for any change and there's been a lot of push with bitcoin and crypto excuse me with cryptocurrency to decentralize things people want to even there's a push in it for decentralized internet and platforms. An example of a decentralized platform that's pretty popular, maybe notorious slightly, but 
is OnlyFans. People don't realize it's a de- decentralized site. What I'm getting at is when you de- say decentralized, what do you what exactly are you? So so what we have right now in America as far as banking is central banking. So all the issues that we've been dealing with in 2020 quarantine due to the pandemic, everything is beholden to something else. I'm being super simple with this, with decentralizing. So it's like back in the old days, you had the telephone company and that was pretty much mom and pa bells were a monopoly. And then when you move to a particular geo-located area, you can only get one or two cable providers, but it all comes down to huge conglomerates that own everything or have to go through. So even your internet, that's an internet service provider, ISP, those roll up into bigger conglomerates. And you don't really have that much flexibility, for instance, about how fast you want to go on the internet or how fast you want to pay for that service. What will the ISP allow you to actually do? It's almost like they really control the system. And in banking, we have a central banking system. Most big countries like the EU, I'm saying that's a huge union of countries, but America is an example. We have a central bank. The Fed regulates, does everything. And crypto has been around for almost, what, 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. It's going on. So they've been pushing back. Instead of recognizing what you had is typical approach to business, which is people want to figure out try to understand it and figure out how to own it, right? How to own it. So then you have different people coming up with their own blockchains to control the crypto. So either they're coming up with their own version of crypto or they want to have their blockchains be the proprietary or the main blockchains. So once again, kind of having a semi-monopoly to control the new technology, okay? so. What you have here with Wall Street Bets, which is speaking to it, with the charges, I don't think they ever dreamed <laughs> that there would be a swarm, right? The old days, the most you had a swarm was people showing up in mass to pull their money out of the bank, right? In the Great Depression. Having a run on the bank is what, when you go to financial school, <laughs> that's what they teach you. Run on the bank and how to prevent that, how to stop that hysteria from taking on. They haven't had, even with the crisis in 2006 to 10, we had institutions fall and you had people maybe pull their, but you hadn't have people on lines and mania of going to go pull their money out of banks in mass. And now this was a surge, if you will, or wave of people buying certain stocks, buying certain options in mass. And this was all enabled by the technology. So in a way, <laughs> Wall Street, the SEC, FINRA, our Fed, the government has not wanted to acknowledge what has been happening as far as decentralizing money movement, liquid money, digital money movement. Things move way faster. The fact that a person who's over 21 or whatever the year age of consent is can download the app, the um, Robinhood app or Cash app and invest from the palm of their hand and then move on to Instagram and TikTok is revolutionary. Before that, when I came up knowing of investments, I still had to go to the uh, brokerage house. I had to go to the TD Ameritrade, go to the Charles Schwab, go to the investment house and sign the paperwork, then wait a few days for my money to then transfer over. 
And then I would have a brokerage account, like very old school <laughs> approach. And that's what it is, the old guard versus the new guard. And actually in work, I did have many experiences of feeling like you're pushing up against a system. It's like, how do you win? You definitely need sponsors and adopters, stakeholders who are early adopters and will champion the change. Another way to get success with any change or that seems like disruption to people is show them the early value. Show them the early, the easiest layups, the value to the people in mass, and then you'll get support. Trying to start off with something complex as far as a big change, it's a lot harder to get people to adapt and change those habits that they have. So <laughs> I have a funny story. Teaching people, for instance, this sounds so elementary, but when you teach people at work, you have to be prepared for people being on different points on the curve, on the learning curve. And an executive at a company who's very actively and actively manages their own work and not their assistant, they're going to be at a different point in the learning curve than somebody who just has one particular job to do as their employer and they not, may not interact all that much with systems and whatnot. So educating people, you have to take in for that. But at one particular company, Maria, we had a whole Outlook series. Actually, it wasn't Outlook, it was Microsoft 365 series. We did the series for two weeks of like lunch and learns. I tried with senior leadership to get uh, time outside of lunchtime. I thought that was in a way possibly taking from the employees their lunch hour, but I was only able to win lunch and learns during lunch hours. And uh, people actually turned out and came for in-person classes. And then I made several different series of videos, short videos that they could send and share to each other. And then I sent out to people on how to do very little small processes to make their workflow easier. And it just so happens that that company did not have a work from home culture before the pandemic. And I found out that the work that I did with that Office 365 outreach actually enabled and boosted their productivity in a work from home that was extremely disruptive because it was something only senior leadership and a few other people were allowed to do at that particular company. So now that everybody, like 90% of their workforce is working from home, they referenced the knowledge base that I created with those trainings and those videos to do that. But at the time, I didn't have that many champions that thought that it was necessary, thought that it had any value. I had to fight an uphill battle to try to get the series approved and done. I think you make a really good point there. I, I was, you know, I didn't finish the thought that I was saying about the innovative idea that was proposed years ago, but you dated us a little bit on the old school way we would have to put in trades in our individual account, but that speaks to timing. There's there's the element of, I'll tell you, I think part of the idea you expressed a, a time when you gave an idea and it didn't get immediate. There was a little bit of hesitation, not probably not everybody bought in and eventually they saw great value in it. So I'll say for my idea, there wasn't adoption year one. It took a change in leadership actually with the broader vision changing that then it was it was almost like, a, oh yeah, of course we would do that. No brainer on this audience that before we didn't think 
would be sophisticated enough for us to for us to actually approach with thoughtfulness strategy material communication all of that treat like a target audience it it took an overarching structural change within the firm so it's not necessarily always a personal failure if the idea isn't adopted broadly there is such a thing i and we can debate on this of being a little bit of ahead of your time because the folks who were proponents of work from home before COVID-19 pandemic, they were not as necessarily as successful as after most of us were forced to work from, go from the office to work from home. And that's because the global pandemic didn't happen yet. And there were still, there were some firms who were like, yeah, I think that would increase productivity and increase the attraction for people to come work with us for a variety of reasons they adopted some manner of partial work from home schedule but then there were there's still others even within the same company that just they couldn't be convinced that workers would be productive at home like there was just no talking them into that no days of the week so they were demanding five days a week be in the office and that is the way you get productivity out of workers and now sitting here today that we can argue whether everybody's productive from home, right? Because it, it matters what your at-home conditions are. But the notion that nobody can be productive from home almost seems not laughable now. But it took a sea change, literally a global change for perception around that to, to change. So similarly, with you're talking about trading and the ease at which someone can trade now from their fingertips. Whereas I remember back in my day, <laughs> literally walking with a paper tray two floors down to give an options trade to the traders. Okay. That's, and that wasn't that long ago. Things accelerate in, in progress and in technological um, solutions. It, it's an accelerated rate. Okay. So I, what I'm ob ob observing from some of these uh, institutions is not an appreciation for the acceleration, but very often a response to the last crisis, but not so much an anticipation of what could happen ahead. So you talked about run on the banks, and that's a really great example because cash is king during those times, right? Now, I I pay in cash if I don't, I don't necessarily want my credit card to know that I bought that thing. It could be a, a little bit of a, a data privacy move to have a cash transaction, but not that I did anything illicit, but just you, you and I are both experts in at the analytical watchful eye, the data analytics and how our purchasing behavior is scrutinized to just mind boggling lengths. But most of the times we're especially working from home i have my credit card attached to a variety of different apps and websites and it's a digital wallet i used to joke with people when's the last time you actually counted every dollar you got paid in even if in your last paycheck much less in your savings accounts right? a lot of people it's, don't know you're, it's, you're, a number, you're right. it's a number Literally, we've depended on the number that shows up on the screen at the ATM, on our phones, on our computer. 
But we're still operating, we, and I'm, I'm saying financial services and a lot of other institutions, we're still operating as if the worst thing that could happen is something like the run on the banks, right? Now, it's, I'm oversimplifying because, of course, we have those, you know, stop gaps for some of the stock exchanges for severe dips where it seems like the market the trading is there's a trading frenzy, but that's a different set of rules than what we were talking about recently with um, Robinhood, which is why Robinhood deserves his own episode. But to the point of the title of this episode, I, I just, I'm very interested in how many firms are actually truly looking forward to anticipate and start to read the signs of the next crisis without being obsessed with how well-prepared they are to prevent the last crisis from happening again. And even then it's not always foolproof, but there's a lot more discussion around that given now we have gone through in a, a couple of waves of disruptions that have, have involved folks banding together online. And you and I know that there's software that scrapes websites and data mines and can come up with themes of what people are beginning to talk about and it leads to business decisions, right? So one example is I think it's Johnson & Johnson, one of the big companies that, or it could be PNG, that is connected to healthcare and a measure of, of healthcare, if you will. And so if I'm not mistaken, they were in a, a partnership with Google so that at times when people are searching for things like cold remedies, they can anticipate that sales in cold and flu products, OTC, will go up. And so with those same analytical approaches, I'm just interested in our teams, as I said before, using the tools that are available at hand to start to, and it's a disciplinary, probably a cross-disciplinary discussion, but how are they looking at anticipating disruptions on a more kind of consistent basis? Well, Marie, I'm going to jump in there. And I think that it ultimately, do, comes, <laughs> I think it ultimately comes down to acceptance, recognition, acceptance and recognition that technology is a great enabler and a leveler. And I think this is why I say old guard versus new guard. When I would have to fight for projects at work, I would have to remind senior leadership that everyone has a mobile phone that they interact with. So don't underestimate whether or not you think an end user here at the institution can or cannot learn how to do something new digitally speaking. And I think that with disruptions, Technology helps enable that. I think that with what happened in 2020, with the unfortunate demise, murder of George Floyd, technology. I remember when videos took forever to load. <laughs> you couldn't share them. People just take so much for granted. Something like a YouTube, for example, or a Vimeo, for example. It would take forever to download a picture, much less Video was like, oh my goodness, to even watch one online, you'd have to look at it loading up. <laughs> and what I'm saying, enabling is processors got faster, technology got better, 
then we start to live online and we take it for granted that everybody has YouTube accounts and people share and swap videos and stories. But there was a time when doing that was extremely pain painful exercise to the point where you wouldn't want to even try to share it. And it enabled us to have the time to unfortunately watch that person's effectually being snuffed out on television, on live, on video. We also got to see that Susan Cooper, the woman with the birds, the bird walk, the gentleman in Central Park. That happened mm -hmm. the day before. So it was just like back to back. Then we got to watch the protests happen once again live on video or live stream and even live streaming used to be like what even cutting the cord all of these things many people don't realize cutting the cord from a cable provider is is trying to decentralize yourself and it's funny how we keep as a construct we keep trying to centralize it again so i'll use an example of cutting the cord and people would go to a netflix go to a streaming platform to, they're like, I'm gonna save money, I don't need television, I just pay for it. Well, guess what? Now, all of the different <laughs> uh, content providers yep. <laughs> all, are all, all trying to charge you service fees. So even though you think you're decentralized, no, that you turn around and look at your monthly bill and you've you've got a whole, uh, uh, what it adds up to a cable package. You're paying for it over here on Hulu, you're paying for it at Netflix, you're playing for the HBO Max over here, you're paying for Apple TV, and you're like, I thought we cut the cord. So it is like, once again, big business, and I'm not saying big business is bad, <laughs> not at all. We work for big business in the daytime. However, it is always trying to do its very usual setup template of owning and dominating and semi-monopolizing any type of new technology. It's all about money. And then you bring the disruption to what happened with Wall Street bets. And before that, with the capital insurrection of January 6th of this year, that couldn't have happened without technology and the different platforms and allowing people to organize without being together in the present. Before, you'd have to go to a meeting somewhere in the bush, in the woods, and have to know somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> and you maybe got a pamphlet and you heard about the movement. And that's how people used to do those things. And now, so easy. And then it brings us to Wall Street bets this passing week of what happened here. They didn't happen overnight. I love how the media loves to report it. Those guys have been working and people have been exchanging information and ideas for years, if not months. You know, so once again, I feel like technology is a leveler. It enables, but it also levels. Remote work from home used to be something that depending on your firm or institution, it was only given out or doled out based on status in the org chart or who your boss was. You were, everyone wasn't allowed to do it. And now here it is, everyone's working from home. I couldn't agree more. I was also thinking about uh, the generational uh, approaches to things, right? Like I had mentioned, and, and you said the same thing, like sometimes you're a little bit ahead of your time and it takes a new leadership or a new guard to recognize the idea. I, I, I just want to add, it's not as if we have anything against old, older people, because, you know, I'm old to many people <laughs> and not to other people. It's, it's not an age thing when we talk about old guard. And it's, it's also not to say that young people. Hmm? It's a mentality. Bingo. Because not all young people are innovative. Or exactly, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I love, 
I love the young, young, young <laughs> rappers, but their impatience with wanting everything yesterday is hilarious. So I'm always like, you did change takes a little bit of time. It's not that instance, but Maria, to pivot to what you've been bringing up is corporations have different postures. They have right risk tolerances and, yep. and postures of okay. what they're willing to tolerate and not tolerate. And the posture oftentimes for big corporations is a reactive one, which is getting to what you're talking about, recognizing and preparing. It's not an anticipatory posture unless it's something that's going to put them out of business. And even then we've seen time and time again with corporations that do not innovate, they die or they take it for granted that they have the technology that was is or was the thing at the time. They do not innovate, they don't ideate, they get comfortable and then something comes out from left field, which is why a lot of people want to go to startups where you have your chief of people. You don't have HR. It's chief of people. It's the people department, not HR. A different way. And it's a flat organization, not a tall one. It is the same kind of trying to level it out and, and not make it so hierarchical, if you will. But it's about postures, I, I believe about what do you want to get ahead of this or do you want to be behind it what do you think i totally agree i i think that there's there are people who have a mind for getting ahead of it and so that's why i say th there's there needs to be a, a group of people at a firm that they're gonna be tasked with getting ahead of things it's a tough job not gonna lie but at least it begins to ask what I think will be some of the right questions. And they'll have license to maybe be a little bit less establishment-minded in order for the longevity of the firm, in order for thinking about the firm's future. It's always interesting to me that firms will talk about their one-year strategy or your five-year strategy. There are countries um, over in Asia big one on the map, big global power that thinks 100-year plan, right? And these are private firms that are thinking 100 years into the future. Mind-blowing for Americans, but that is part of what I think we, we need to at least start to ask the right questions. Not to say that you're going to get that right. Obviously, you're not. Obviously, nobody's predicting the future. And we have our psychics in a relegated place. So not about future prediction, but about how to ask a smart, intelligent question based on the tools and the rate at which things are changing today. And there are, you started to touch on something that at least in my work of being a part of strategy and, and, and thinking about competitive intelligence, there are themes. We can see macro movements often on a national level or global level, that then there's manifestations from those thematics. And then when you look at it from that global lens, it's not random that certain outcomes will happen. So for example, there was a move towards popularism when Boris Johnson was elected over in the UK and the now former president, 45, 
was elected as well, there was a global popularism movement that tended to be national centric. And and it combined with, as you say, people organizing, whereas back in the day, they organized locally. If you got that fly, if you saw that flyer at the barbershop and you showed up in the middle of the woods, people are not coming from a thousand miles away. But online, now you can get an idea sparked by somebody sitting in Bulgaria. Okay. And now band with people from anywhere and organize. It changes the game completely. But if you start to understand that dynamic, then you can almost predict the other things that can happen. I don't know. What would you say? I would definitely say you said it there. <laughs> I, I, I think we can definitely go deeper. And probably have another episode on this. Because we can always go deeper. Yeah, y'all don't know. At least and I'll have conversations that just go into the wee hours of the night. Yeah, because I, I definitely, but I need to not happen anymore. And I think this is where people were on the the big channels talking about the anger and the upset of the Wall Street bets and the redditors and the young being upset and disenfranchised. If you don't keep the door open and people don't think that it's one thing to have lip service, right? If you really want to ideate, you can't punish people for coming in with new ideas. You can't always view a presentation of that or a suggestion of that as disruption and it must be snuffed out. If that is the attitude, that is the response, that is the reaction, that is in where the change needs to take place. There needs to be a system or a process for corporations or firms who are really serious about it and not just saying it because that's the campaign of the day or the week or the month to take those suggestions into real account and really try to execute them. I did work at a company where they did have an innovation and ideation award. And actually for people who did submit, it was surprising People who submitted out of the whole firm, and not that many people submitted, not I don't think even 10%. What they did do is they gave out a, about, was it 10 gift cards to the top 10 ideas. And then I worked on that project to see about executing some of them. And we actually did many that got suggested that year. We actually were able to execute or put about plans or processes in place to remedy or execute them in the near future. So that actually made the rank and file and employees feel really good that they were being listened to. So I I would end on that. How about you, Maria? That sounds like a plan. We'll be chatting with you (laughs) at the next episode very soon. Have a great one. We'll see you then. Thanks a lot.